This past week, I had the pleasure of doing lunch with a pastor friend of mine that I hadn't uh, connected with in a while. And as we're having lunch, his phone buzzed, and there had been some family issues going on, and so he needed to be close to his phone. So he'd warned me about that, so I wasn't offended when he looked. But he looks at his phone, and all of a sudden looks at me and says, how's your wife listed in your phone? I thought this was an odd question, but I figured it was his wife who had just texted him, so I thought I'd play along. I said, "Uh, she's just listed as Leanne. And he kind of rolls his eyes, but I realized it wasn't at me. It was kind of at himself. He says that a few weeks ago, his wife discovered that she was just listed under her name. And she was a little offended. She, she wanted to have something kind of cute. Something to indicate that she was really special. So he thought, all right, I'll, I'll play along. He changed it to my girlfriend. Well, a couple weeks ago, he was preaching and he said he hates having his phone in his pocket while he preaches. So he, every week, leaves it back in the sound booth. Well, the worship gathering gets done. The pastor's up front talking with some people. Most people have left, including his wife and children. And his wife realizes, oh, I need to connect with him about something. Whether it was like pick something up at the grocery store or we're going to this restaurant, meet us here. And so she calls. Well, most people are gone except for a guy in the sound booth who's cleaning up, picking up, and he looks down and sees the pastor's phone. (laughs) And worry floods his mind and heart as he sees the pastor's phone say, my girlfriend. Now, as he's telling me the story, I am busting a gut. Like, I'm, I'm on the verge of creating a scene in the restaurant. Like, this is the funniest thing I've heard in a long time. I'm trying to hold it together. And, and he, t- he reassures me. He says, it was all resolved within just a couple of minutes. He says, I was able to have my wife talk to the guy. He realized it really was my wife. Everything was okay. And, and he says, but just for a split second, the guy in the sound booth, has all these judgments rush through his head. Like, he's suddenly concerned for his pastor. Like, my pastor has a girlfriend on the side. You know, he's concerned for the pastor's marriage and family. He's concerned for just the future of the church. I mean, just all these things rush to mind, all because he saw something, immediately defined it, and misunderstood. You and I do this all the time. The human mind is always trying to wrap itself around what it sees, what it hears, what it experiences. We are always seeking to bring definition so that we feel comfortable with what we're seeing and experiencing. But sometimes we end up with a misunderstanding. For instance, you could see a gentleman in a really nice suit driving a really expensive car, and you're going to rush to judgment that he must make a lot of money. But the reality might be that he is so deep in debt, he's about to go bankrupt, and he's going to lose it all. Or you see the woman in, you know, kind of frumpy clothes, and you find out she lives in a trailer, and she's a little overweight, and she kind of moves weird, and and you're just thinking, like, she's just lazy, she needs to get a job. But maybe she has a master's degree and barely survived a car accident that has put her in the condition that she's in today. We all the time try to define things, and we sometimes end up with the wrong definition. We have a misunderstanding. I fell into this trap one day in college. I transferred schools, and I'm getting settled into my new room, and I meet a guy on my floor named Pat. 
And Pat, when you would talk to him, would kind of look at you like this. And he'd have this grin, and, and he'd kind of look at you. And you're thinking, what's up with Pat? And so my rush to judgment was that all the wires weren't quite connected. Like maybe he got into the school on some special program. I'll be really nice. You know, maybe he's a super wonderful guy. But yeah, I don't think they're all connecting. It turns out that Pat was actually an engineering major, was brilliant at math. His family would just rave about how smart he was. The reason he'd look at you kind of cocked is that he was deaf in one ear. And so he was always pointing his good ear at you. I made the wrong assumption. I had the wrong definition. I think in America, we have the wrong definition when it comes to church. I think that many of us have an idea of what the church is, what it is supposed to be. Because we have seen things, we've heard things, we've experienced things. And so in our minds, we try to figure out this is what the box of the church is. But we end up with the wrong definition. For some people, the church is a building. Now, we are a mobile church. I know that not tons of people fall into that trap in Riverwood. But all over the place, people do. For some, it is a Sunday morning thing. It's something that you go to. For some, it's an institution. For some, it has to contain certain elements. There has to be a certain style of song or a certain style of preaching. Or it's got to contain these sort of things, you know, confessionals or prayers before it is church. It's like the cell phone rings and on the face of it, it says, my church. And we come up with the definition of what that is. But like the guy in the sound booth, we might have a misunderstanding. Today, as we continue in this His Story series, we're going into the book of Acts. And we're going to see the establishment of the church as well as the expansion of the church. And as we look at this, it might confront some of your definitions of what church is. And that challenge might be a good thing for you. Because I don't want you falling into the trap thinking that church is just a place or just a Sunday thing. Rather, we need to start realizing that the church has a mission. It has a purpose. It is something that is on the move. And that definition can make all the difference in our lives. So, Father, I pray as we get ready to jump into the scriptures that you would ultimately be our teacher this morning. I pray that you would help us to capture your definition of church because you're the one who started the church. You are the one who sustains the church. You are the one who has built the church for a purpose. And this little church here, Riverwood, plays just a part in it. And I pray, Father, that you would help my church family and myself understand what you want church to be so we can be the church you call us to be. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you brought a Bible, whether a paper copy or a digital one, open it up to the book of Acts. If you want to sound really smart, the book of Acts is actually called the Acts of the Apostles. But because that's a lot to say, most people are just lazy and say the book of Acts. All right, so now you're in the know on that. We actually were in the book of Acts last week just a little bit as we looked at the ascension of Jesus. We had to dip into chapter 1 where we saw that right before Jesus ascended up to heaven in front of his disciples, he gave one last command. And that command was he wanted them to be his witnesses. He wanted them to be witnesses. They had seen him die on the cross. They saw him rise from the dead. They experienced all this and realized that that changed everything. That Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. And this message needed to be spread. So he wanted them to be his witnesses. And he even told them where. He says, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And to help them accomplish this task, he said he was going to give them, empower them with the Holy Spirit. Well, that moment comes 
in the very next chapter. So join me in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. All right, when the day of Pentecost arrived, all right, we'll pause there for a second. Pentecost is a Jewish feast. It's one of three Jewish feasts where the people, the Israelites, were expected to come to Jerusalem to worship God. Passover, uh, Pentecost, and I, I'm blanking on the other one. Oh, the Feast of Tabernacles. All right, so you were supposed to come to Jerusalem. So that meant Jews from all over the place would come to Jerusalem to worship. And Pentecost, some said that it was kind of like this harvest type thing, but actually most of the things I read this week said that it was actually the celebration of the giving of the law. It's when God gave the Mosaic law to Moses to establish the Mosaic covenant. And so in a sense, it was the establishment of Judaism, right? So that is what is being celebrated on Pentecost. All right, so when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, they being the disciples of Jesus. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Most scholars from all different theological tribes believe that this means that the church has started. That just as God gave the external law to Moses, and that's what was being celebrated at Pentecost. Now God gives the internal Holy Spirit to the followers of Jesus. And this ushers in the age of the church. And, and so kind of commemorate the day, and we're going to get to why in a minute. God sends the Holy Spirit to come in them and empowers them to speak these other languages that they'd never known before. I shared a story several months ago, so some of you might remember it. I ask for your apologies for reusing an illustration, but it fits this moment really, really well. A couple decades ago, I had the opportunity of going to a men's breakfast where a missionary who was on home assignment back in the United States was speaking. And he worked with a missions agency that would broadcast over shortwave radio Christian uh, broadcasting. Right? And so they would broadcast it in all these countries, and he'd sit in a, a radio booth and would have no idea what these people were saying. Well, he said one day, he thought, you know what, I'm just going to listen to the shortwave radio myself. So he just starts flipping through, and he finds stations from all over the world. All of a sudden, he finds one, and he stops. And it was ESPN International Radio. Now, I would be thinking, like, wow, that'd be cool. But for him, he's like, I could care less about sports. The, the, the person, the, the announcer was just reading the sports scores from the night before, like a bunch of baseball scores. This missionary, his name was Nate. He's like, I don't care about sports any. He says, you could read sports scores. You may as well be reading hog futures. Like, I don't care. And yet he said he began to choke up. 
He's like, wait, what, what is going on? Why am I tearing up listening to baseball scores? I don't even like baseball. And that's when it hit him. It's because he was hearing American English. It wasn't just British English or Australian English. I mean, it was American English, even with a Midwestern accent. And this started to cause him to tear up. Imagine you were overseas somewhere in a country where you have no idea what the language is. Let's just pick one. Let's just pick Nepal. You go to Nepal. You do not understand a word. You go to this busy restaurant, and right there in the midst of all the chaos, you hear someone speaking American English with a Midwestern accent, that would cut through the noise. That's what's happening here in Acts 2. There's all of a sudden all this chaos, this mighty rush of wind. Everyone's like, whoa, what was that? They sense something going on in this building. So they all kind of gather around, and suddenly there's this noise. There's all this talking. What's happening? And then all of a sudden, in the midst of all of that, you hear your language. And what is that language saying? It's proclaiming the mighty works of God, it says in verse 12. Proclaiming all that God has done, including the mightiest thing that God had ever done. That was to send his son down to earth to live a sinless life, but to go and die a sinner's death upon a cross, but on the third day to rise again from the dead. And now these guys are proclaiming it in all of these different languages. And all those who gathered for Pentecost are standing there stunned. What does this mean? So we see the establishment of the church. And immediately after it's established, there has to be a sermon. Peter stands up with all of these people and begins to deliver a sermon. And I suspect that no one fell asleep during that one. Because of all that's happening, they're tuned in, they're listening. And what is it that Peter begins to preach? He begins to preach about the death and resurrection of Jesus. As he talks to these Jews, he helps them see that the Old Testament had been pointing to this Messiah and that Jesus was that Messiah and that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins and rose again from the dead. And as his sermon is coming to conclusion, some people in the crowd yell out, so what should we do? And here's what he says. Join me in Acts 2, all the way down in verse 38. Verse 38. And Peter said to them, to the crowd, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So there it is. He basically gives them an invitation to follow Jesus. And what is the response? Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I want you to think about that for just a moment. On this day that the church starts, there was more than just the 12 disciples. All right? There were there some women with them, maybe a few others. Let's just say there were 50 in that room. The Holy Spirit comes down upon them, and 50 people are there. That's like a nice, beautiful country church. All right? this, this, that's a great small church. All of a sudden, Peter preaches the first sermon ever, and 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus. You go from small country church to mega church overnight. Immediately after the church is established, we see it begin to expand. And today in the book of Acts, we're going to see three expansions of the church. And the first one is this. We see it expand numerically. The church expands numerically. Immediately after preaching, 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus. 
I wonder if that caused some of that original 50 to go, uh-oh. I remember uh, when I was the worship director at a church plant out in Denver, Colorado. We met in a school. In fact, the week that I candidated, there were 11 people in the worship service that morning. And that included me and Leanne. Right? This was a really small church. And when we were about 30 people, we had this uh, family that had moved in just down the street from the church, had seen the signs, and decided to come visit. And we saw Patty place her faith in Jesus. We saw her marriage to her husband healed. And we got the chance to invest and disciple their, their little boys. Patty was enthusiastic, couldn't sing a note, but yet she would stand right on the front row and just clap and sing as the worship director. I loved Patty. One day, Patty grabs the pastor and pulls him aside. and says, Pastor, I'm really concerned for our church. Pastor's kind of taken aback. He says, well, why? She says, we're getting too big. Really? Because we're only at about 65 people at this time. And he says, why do you think it's too big? She says, because I don't know everyone anymore. Now, I want you to imagine for a second that Patty's right. Let's say 65 is actually too big. So let's say that 60 is where you have to cap it off. So 60, that's the size that a church should be right there. So then suddenly Patty and her husband move in. We're already a church of 60. They try to come and visit. And Oh, we're so sorry. We're already too big. You can't come in. And we lose out on the opportunity of seeing Patty meet Jesus, of seeing her marriage healed, and seeing her family changed. You can't sit there and wedge yourself to a certain size and say, this is enough. The, the disciples, even after 3,000 people, couldn't shut up. They had to keep telling about Jesus. They kept spreading this gospel. And it kept meaning more and more people were coming to know Jesus. Even after chapter 3 and 4, where you see some external pressure start coming, the church continues to grow. In chapters 5 and 6, you see some internal problems start happening. And the church continues to grow. It just continued to grow numerically. As it says in the end of chapter 2, that day by day, the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. The church would not stop expanding. It just kept growing numerically. The Spirit of God was working. Eyes were being opened. They were hearing the gospel and responding. This is why you cannot define a church based on its size and judge its health based on its size. I know some people will judge a large church as being, oh, that's, that's a good church. That's a great church. Simply because there's a lot of people. If a lot of people go to it, it must be a good church. I hate to tell you this, but I know of some large churches that are very unhealthy. But that causes some people to go, oh, the reason they're large is they must have like watered down the gospel. They, they must be doing something wrong just to attract people. They're not really adhering to the, the scriptures. So the, the small church, that's where it's at, where you really know each other, you bear one another's burdens. That's where it's at. I hate to tell you this too, but I also know some small churches that are unhealthy. Do not let yourself get attached to a certain church size. Let yourself be attached to Jesus. And if Jesus decides that your church should remain about 100 people, even as you have people you know, coming and joining, but other people are moving away, or you're sending them on the mission field, you continue to proclaim Jesus. And if you're a large church, you never say, oh, I guess we're running three services, we're really big. You know what? That's enough. We'll just stop here. No, you've got to continue to share the gospel story because there are other people who still need to hear it and have their lives changed by Jesus. So don't get attached to church size. The church cannot be defined by how many are there. Let it be defined by its adherence to the gospel. Let your church continue to preach Jesus. And when you preach Jesus, 
it's going to grow numerically. Right? The second expansion that we see is we see the church expand geographically. We see the church expand geographically. When uh, Jesus, um, well, first in three, chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, where we're seeing some of these problems happen and the church continue to grow, all of that growth is happening in Jerusalem. Right? So it's happening in Jerusalem, but yet Jesus didn't say, I want you to be my witnesses in only Jerusalem. He said, I want you to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And what it takes to spur that on is a very tragic event. In chapter 6, we meet a guy by the name of Stephen. Stephen is recruited to be one of the leaders of a new ministry. The church, one of the internal problems they were having was some widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food. And the apostles were saying, hey, we've got to continue to devote ourselves to the word and prayer. Let's appoint some godly men to oversee this ministry. And so one of those guys was Stephen. Well, Stephen was so full of the Holy Spirit that just going out and about, he couldn't help but tell people about Jesus, and God would do miracles through him. Well, this became a threat to some of the Jewish leaders. So they actually arrested him because he's causing such a disturbance within Judaism. And so in chapter 7, you can see his trial. And he gives a defense of what he's doing. And he basically just starts retelling the Old Testament narrative and bringing it towards Jesus. And then suddenly he turns on the Jewish leaders and basically accuses them of being hard-hearted. That they need Jesus too. Now, Peter does that in chapter 2. 3,000 people are convicted and they give their lives to Jesus. Stephen preaches something similar. Preaches about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the hearts of the listeners get hardened even more. They get angry and they drag him outside and they stone him, making Stephen the first Christian martyr that we have recorded. As soon as that event happens, persecution breaks out. It was like the Jewish leaders who were trying to protect Judaism from this sect of Judaism that's ruining everything. It's like now they suddenly felt this permission of freedom to just persecute anyone who proclaimed Jesus as Messiah. And this is what it says that happens. Join me in chapter 8, verse 1. We're going to start at the second sentence there. You can skip the first sentence. Second sentence in chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they, the disciples of Jesus, were all scattered throughout the regions. Where? Of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles remained in Jerusalem to continue to lead the church. But many of these disciples, for fear of their lives, began to spread out. And even though they're being persecuted for their faith, they head into these other regions and they can't help themselves. They have to continue to share the gospel because they're witnesses of Jesus' death on a cross for the forgiveness of their sins. He rose from the dead. This is the greatest news in the entire world. And they have to share it. And we see it begin to expand geographically. This is why you cannot let your definition of church be just a building or one location. The church was not designed by God to just be contained. The church is to be going. The only reason you, you come into a building is for this purpose of gathering with other believers to worship and connect with God, to be inspired and reminded of the gospel so that you can go and what? Be dispersed back out into the community, into your neighborhoods, into your workplaces to take the gospel. That's the definition of church we need. It's not about a building. It's about us going. It's about us being on mission. So we see the church expand numerically, but we also see it expand 
sorry, geographically. And then one last one. We see the church expand culturally. We see the church expand culturally. When the uh, early church was in Jerusalem, it was primarily all Jews. Uh, Jesus was Jewish, and so he recruited these Jewish disciples. And so when the whole story of Jesus dying on the cross for their sins and rising again from the dead, to them, this wasn't the beginning of a new religion. This was just the continuation of Judaism. I mean, the, the Jewish scriptures had been pointing to this. They now understood that. This was just a continuation. They weren't trying to go and start something new. Which meant that in their minds, this new church that got us started was for Jews. The gospel was for Jewish people. And God exploded that understanding in chapter 10. In chapter 10 of the book of Acts, we see Peter, one of the, these Jewish leaders, the apostles. He's up on top of a building waiting for supper to be made. And he has a crazy dream. In fact, he has it three times. But that dream is so powerful, it changes his mind about Gentiles. He realizes the gospel isn't just for the Jewish people. It's also for Gentiles. So when a bunch of guys show up at the house saying, Hey, our master, uh, his name is Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion. He sent for someone named Simon Peter. Is he here? Simon Peter takes off with them, goes back. Now, normally a good Jewish man would not enter into the home of a Gentile. To do so would make you ceremonially unclean. But because of the vision, Peter realizes, God is sending me to these guys. I guess they need Jesus. So he comes into the house. Cornelius and his whole family are there. And what does Peter do? He does what he did in chapter 2. He preaches the gospel. He shares about Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And look at what happens. Chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Excuse me. Peter is just doing what he knows to do. Just be a witness. Share what you saw, what you experienced. You talk about Jesus. And all of a sudden, he sees these Gentiles, these non-Jews, receive the Holy Spirit. And how does he know? Because it happens in the very same way as it happened back in chapter 2. And so he realizes that God is even saving the Gentiles. So what was it that Jesus said back in Matthew 28? Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Peter's like, all right, God saved them. Let's baptize them. And so they're baptized. And now more are being added to the church. But now it's not just Jews being added to the church. It's also Gentiles, non-Jews. This helps us see that the church is not to be one color. It's not to be one economic level. It's not to be one style. The church is to be this multicultural. It is, the gospel is for all races, for all income levels. It doesn't matter your gender, your past sins, your present sins. This gospel is for all. And that's what these disciples did. They just went everywhere sharing the gospel with anyone that would listen. And you see them coming to know Jesus from all over the world. So why aren't we that type of church? Why don't we just go and share the gospel to anyone and everyone? 
We don't need our church to be completely uniform. Now, I realize we live in Waverly, Iowa, all right? We're not going to see wide swaths of diversity. And yet, we have Wartburg College that has a bunch of international students. What are we doing to love them? What are we doing to help take the gospel to other places? Where are we spending our money? Where are we putting our prayers? Because this gospel is for everyone. It wasn't just designed to change my life, make me happy and comfortable. It was designed to change the lives of everyone. If you don't believe me, go and look at the back of the, st- the end of the story. In the last book of the Bible, as John, uh, the apostle, is kind of sent off into exile in the book of Revelation, he has a vision of heaven. And here's what he sees. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The end of the story is that there will be representatives from every nation, tribe, tongue, language. They all belong. This gospel is for all. This is God's heart. This is why uh, Paul, when he wrote uh, his first letter to Timothy, he said this, that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. This gospel message is for all people, regardless of their skin color, regardless of how much money they make, regardless of what type of clothes they wear, regardless of anything. The gospel is for them. If they're human, the image of God is in them. It may be blurred and distorted and marred. It may be in in, in shambles. But God's gospel is there to restore it and repair it. And as he does, those people are added to the church and the church continues to expand. So what we see in the book of Acts is the establishment of the church and the expansion of the church. And we see it expand numerically, geographically, and culturally. But let me remind you that we are in a series called His Story. And the subtitle for this series is that every page points to Jesus. And the book of Acts is no different. This book continues to point to Jesus. Because while we see the establishment of the church and the expansion of the church, we also are reminded of the purpose of the church. And the purpose of the church was to share the gospel and to disciple people, to raise them up into maturity in Jesus. Some of these guys, some of these disciples, they lost their lives because of this gospel. This gospel message was considered threatening. And yet they couldn't stop. They couldn't deny what they knew to be true. And so they had to share it, even if it cost them their life. If you remember back, we were talking about Stephen back in chapter 7, and he gives his defense, and he ends up being killed and stoned there at the end of chapter 7. Right there in the description as they're throwing the stones at Stephen, this new character appears, and his name is Saul. And you go on to see right there in verse 8, we skipped that sentence. It says that Saul approved of the death of Stephen. And part of that persecution was because of Saul. Because these now disciples are scattering out of Jerusalem and they're going to these other cities. 
Paul is so zealous for Judaism, he's got to stop this new sect that's ruining everything. So he gets letters from the Sanhedrin to get permission to go up to another city. He heads off to Damascus because he's heard there's some Jesus followers there. And he's got to nip this in the bud. But on the way, he ends up meeting Jesus himself. Jesus appears to him out on the road. And all of a sudden, Saul has his life changed. He realizes it's true. This Jesus really did live He really is the Jewish Messiah. He really did die on a cross for the forgiveness of sins. And he really did rise from the dead. It devastated Saul at first. But eventually he gave his life to it. And he began to travel around. And slowly his identity shifted from being known as Saul from Tarsus to the Apostle Paul. Who began to travel around. Rather than try and arrest Jesus' followers, he tried to go and make Jesus' followers. That's why in the book of Acts... Chapter 20, he says one of my favorite, uh, favorite verses in all of the scripture. Acts 20, verse 24. Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He's saying, I give up my life because Jesus gave up his for me. And I don't even count my life worth that much value except this, to go and tell people about the gospel. Because the gospel tells people about God's grace, that their sin is forgiven and their eternity can change. So let me ask you two questions. Question number one, is your life pointing to the goodness of Jesus? Are your words, are your life pointing to this gospel? Or is it just this sort of side thing to you? That, yeah, yeah, I'm a good person, but you pretty much just go through your day living for self. Because for these disciples that witnessed the cross, they saw the resurrection, they experienced that wind and the coming of the Holy Spirit, they couldn't shut up. But I seem to have no problem keeping my mouth closed. But if we're going to live the life that God has called us to, We can't help but live it out. It will come through in our actions. It will come through in our eyes. It will come through in our presence, the way we listen to someone. And it will even come through in our words. So does your life and do your words point to Jesus? Because if they do, it's going to cause you to have a different definition of church. And that's my second question. Do you need a new definition of church? Because if church is just a building, something you go to, just some sort of Sunday thing, then it's not going to impact you and make you this person who is living out the gospel daily. But if now you realize that Jesus saved my life, not so I could go and sit in a nice place on Sunday mornings, but he saved my life so that I could go and live on mission to be sent out into the world to go and be a blessing, now it changes how you do church. Now it changes the way that you sing. Now it changes the way that you pray. Now it changes the way that you interact with one another. And it changes the way you leave. Because you don't come in thinking, well, I put in my time. I hope you're happy, God. You walk out going, God, you were so good. I thank you that I could worship you with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Will you now use me this week to make a difference? Sunday isn't the place that you come and put in your time. It's the place where you come and get recharged so that you go and do this. This is the type of church that I want Riverwood to be. It was the dream before we ever started. We actually wanted to see a couple of small groups going before we ever started a Sunday morning service. 
so that we could have the definition that church was not just a Sunday thing, that it's these people of God on mission together. We live in a community, though, that doesn't understand that. To them, church is a building. It is a Sunday thing. And so rather than fight against it, we decided let's go with it and just slowly begin to help change the definition. It takes a lot of work to do Sunday mornings, in case you didn't know. Right? There's stuff that happens all throughout the week. Jeff and I do staff meetings. He's picking songs. He's rehearsing. He's sending stuff out to the worship team. I'm working on the message. There's other stuff that's going on. And then, even on Sundays, we, we, we come together and there's all the setup. And we're just looking at this stuff for the adults. There's also stuff for the kids over there and downstairs. This takes a lot of work. But this is not the end. This is not what it's all about. The reason we do this is two things. Number one, so that those who don't know Jesus and have a definition of church as being a Sunday morning thing have a place to be able to come and hear from the scriptures that Jesus loves them, that he died on a cross for the forgiveness of their sins, and he rose again from the dead to show that he is God, and he's worthy of being followed. We want this message to change their life, just like it changed Patty's and then changed her marriage and changed her family. We want to see that story replicated over and over and over and over in Waverly and Shell Rock and Janesville and Denver and all over Bremer County and Butler County and Blackhawk County and then on to Iowa and beyond. That's how powerful this message is. That's why we can't just be this Sunday morning thing. We are to be a part of a movement. If that excites you, if you're a Jesus follower and that gets your blood going, you're just like, yes, then I invite you to join us. Help us to do this. It could be in simple ways. Come and help us set up. Come, come in and, and, and be involved in some things. But I'm dreaming so much bigger than that. I'm looking forward to the day that we actually get to send out some people to go plant a church somewhere. I believe that there, is, there might be some people right here in this room who God is going to be stirring up a vision, a dream, to go and start a church someplace. I would love for us to send a group of people to go to another city and help plant the gospel there and watch a church bubble up and reproduce. I think there might be some students at Wartburg who need to come and be a part of this church because they're not just going to come into some sort of Sunday thing and feel good about themselves. They're going to be discipled, invested in, raised up, and they might go and help plant churches. I even think that there's someone right now who doesn't even know Jesus, is going to find Christ, have their life changed, they're going to be raised up, and we're going to be sending them to go help plant a new church. It isn't to be about Sundays. It isn't to be about one little institution. It's about Jesus. Now, as you jump into the book of Acts, yes, we see sermons. Yes, we see worship. Yes, we see prayer. Yes, we see gatherings. But those things aren't the ends of themselves. They are the means to the ends. The end is Jesus. So if this excites you, would you join us and help us make much of Jesus and help this world meet him? Would you go and be a blessing? The second reason that we do all of this is to invest in you. We want you to find this Jesus, to be in love with him. And so we ask that you just embed yourself, not just Sundays, Get into a growth group. Come serve with us. Give your life to this. Because as you give your life to this, God does something in you. And you will get to watch him do what only he can do. I firmly believe that God gets the, that we have the greatest joy when God gets the greatest glory. And if we will give our lives to this, we will find joy like we never believed. I'm not going to say it's easy. It's not. As you go into the book of Acts, you see people killed for this. 
and yet they don't count their life with anything except to accomplish the mission that God gave them. Now, if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, you may be a little scared right now. I want you to know I'm glad you're here. We've actually started Riverwood for you. We want to see Patty's story become your story. We want to see God work in your life and through your life. And it means to surrender your life to him. God loves you so much that he took your sin upon the cross. He absorbed it so that your sin was forgiven and you could come back into relationship with your God. He loves you. And so just like I told my church family that if this excites you to join us, I'm going to say the same thing to you. Join us. But it isn't so much about joining us to help this church expand. It's join us by just becoming a follower of Jesus. We would find no more delight today than to know that you gave your life to follow him. And this is going to be the beginning of a wonderful journey. If you're ready to make that decision, all you have to do is kind of indicate it on your card. You'll find on the back of it there that today you, you want to give your life to Jesus. You understand the gospel. Just mark that. To us, we are not. our goal is not to try and get as many of those check marks as we can. Our goal is to help you connect with Jesus. That just lets us know that you're on this journey and you're wanting to connect with him. And we'll follow up with you and we want to help get you connected within this church family to really find Jesus and follow him. But church, this is what God calls us to. We see it so vividly in the book of Acts. And that the reason the book of Acts points to Jesus is because the men and women in the book of Acts pointed to Jesus. And that's what I want Riverwood to be known for. I don't want us to be known as the church that has a certain style of music or a certain type of teaching. I want Riverwood to be, oh, that's the church that's all about Jesus. Because when Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. And we get the joy of watching him change them through the gospel. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would accomplish through Riverwood Church what you have set out to accomplish. God, I know that this church was your dream. Yeah, you've used me, you've used my, my family, you've used some other people to, to get it started, to get it going. But really, this is your church. You've had a dream for it before I even ever thought of this. That means you have a plan that you want to accomplish. And I believe that you want to use the people that are here to be a part of that. So Father, I pray that for the people right now that are sensing you whispering to them, follow me. Whether it's the first time or the hundredth time, I pray that they would give their life to follow you. Jesus, the gospel is so precious. You gave your life for us. Help us to give our life to follow you. God, I will admit it is hard to give up my life. I want to hold on to it and do it my way. Continue to help each of us release our grip and let you do in us what you want to do. Because I believe that it will be for your glory as well as for our joy. So we invite you, Father, to do this deep work in us so you can do this great work through us and make Riverwood Church the church you want it to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.